0: And we've shown that we could improve your sleep architecture by playing these sounds basically throughout the night. Human OS, learn, master, achieve.
1: Sleep is universal and essential. All of us need sleep in order to live. And good sleep is crucial for us to recover from stresses of the day and perform at our very best on a regular basis. But sleep is, in some ways, a mysterious process, which is part of what makes it so fascinating. In particular, aspects of sleep are somewhat difficult to assess outside of a lab. In recent years, an array of trackers and devices have emerged, which purport to be able to gauge the duration and architecture of your sleep but the information that we receive from these trackers is limited by their precision. How accurate are these devices? Can we rely on them for useful feedback to inform our future behavior? This is why I am pleased to have Dr. Daniel Gartenberg on the show. Daniel has dedicated his life to helping people sleep better. He has studied sleep and cognition and has investigated how to accurately track sleep quality through wearable technology. He's also developed several apps, including the Sonic Sleep Coach. Daniel, welcome
0: to Human OS Radio. Dan, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
1: Tell us about your background. How did you get interested in sleep in the first place?
0: Sleep was always something I struggled with in high school when they would make you wake up at an ungodly early hour that is the exact wrong time for your circadian rhythm at that age. I remember passing out in first and second period quite often. I think I had to wake up at like 5.30 to catch my bus. Mm, So that kind of always stuck with me. And then in college, I was actually part of a brainstorming company. And one of the ideas was an alarm clock that measured your sleep. And it just struck me that sleep is something we do so much of. And if you could improve that process just a little bit, it would have a massive global health impact. So that general idea has been driving me for 10 years, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up getting a PhD in this, really trying to understand, can you not only measure sleep, but actually improve people's sleep quality. And I was one of the first apps on the store back in the day, did some validation work for some major wearable companies and saw how inaccurate some of these devices were firsthand Mm -hmm. and then. I was big in quantified self back in like 2010. We thought these devices would change healthcare back then, and sadly they didn't. But what's happening now is they're finally getting the sensor accuracy where they're almost as good as clinical grade devices. And it's just a matter of the clinical and other communities to embrace some of these technologies. And hardware companies are just starting to open up their raw data, which is enabling scientists and researchers and companies to actually use the raw data from these devices, more accurately predict the stage, and actually manipulate you into deeper states of sleep or enhance your sleep in various ways with sounds, lights, and temperature. Those are the tools that we think of when we think of how to actually augment someone's sleep such that eight hours feels more like eight and a half. And that would be the golden goose if we could actually scientifically demonstrate that we can do that.
1: Let's start by talking about how sleep is measured in the clinic. If somebody has the suspicion or their doctor has the suspicion that there's some issue going on with a person's sleep, what do they do? And how has this been historically
0: done to assess if a person's sleep is normal or abnormal? It's a complicated question, and this is part of the problem, at least if someone has insomnia, we can start with that, is typically what will happen is you go to your general practitioner. The GP doesn't have the necessary tools or training to give you the recommended treatment, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That's actually what various clinicians and academics have designated as the first line treatment for insomnia. But the GP doesn't have the time to do that or the training. There's basically like 1,000 people trained in this in the United States. So there's a big issue with just finding people trained in this behavioral therapy. So typically, what will happen is the doctor will prescribe you a drug. Actually, anti-anxieties are the most commonly used drug to help with insomnia. That's currently how medical practice operates for dealing with that. They're not even actually necessarily measuring your sleep that much before intervening. And the crazy part is the current gold standard for measuring insomnia is a paper-pencil sleep diary. Mm -hmm. Right now, we just submitted a proposal to do a clinical trial, and we actually have to use the paper-pencil sleep diary as our primary outcome measure because that's the gold standard for how insomnia is measured. And what we're trying to do is demonstrate that subjectively how you feel you slept last night, there is some value in that information actually. And clinicians know how to deal with and understand that. But we're wanting to augment that information with objective truth from wearable devices regarding how well you slept. That's insomnia. And then we can get into the whole chain of apnea if you'd like. It's a clear example. But generally
1: speaking, there's a variety of different clinical sleep issues. Insomnia and sleep apnea are most prevalent amongst those issues. And yet, if you do finally get to a sleep clinician, and now there are, as opposed to 30 years ago, 20 years ago, far more sleep clinics around the world and in the United States. So it's easier to find one than ever before. But it's still because of the lack of knowledge of sleep at the primary care doctor, there might be a delay in getting the treatment you need because they're not as well-trained on how to identify and treat the problems. So much of that model is recommending medications
0: first. And there's a small distinction that I want to draw there. And the clinics oftentimes will treat insomnia, but they're largely focused on apnea because that's really how they make money on the billing codes generally. So a lot of times the people trained in behavioral sleep health, you actually get a certificate in this. It's not necessarily even doctors, but social workers, psychologists, mental health professionals basically have this certificate in behavioral sleep medicine and they can help with insomnia.
1: Well, I don't think that we need to go into all the different ways that different sleep disorders are actually characterized. Tell us what a night of getting sleep monitored in a sleep clinic, what does that
0: entail? So this is the problem that a lot of people have keyed into because if you say have apnea or think you might have apnea, what'll typically happen is first they'll give you something called a pulse oximeter and it'll screen you It's something you wear on your finger. It's pretty non-invasive. And a lot of times I'll recommend this to people just because it's a first easy non-invasive indicator of whether or not you have apnea.
1: What is the pulse ox
0: measuring? The Pulse Ox is measuring the oxygenation of your blood, basically. And you put it over your finger, typically. Garmin has some kind of loose measure of it. It would be hard to get without over your finger. And basically, when you have apneas, literally, you're not breathing. Your oxygenation of your blood goes down. So the Pulse Ox can detect that.
1: So if it is detected, that oxygenation
0: of the blood varies from what would be considered normal. What would the follow-up be in that case? The follow-up would be, you got to go to your sleep lab now. The pulse ox has said that you're not getting oxygen throughout the night. And we're going to hook you up to 16-channel electrodes, which is called polysomnography. And that's electrodes on your head, under your eyes. There's a, what's called an EOG to get your, the motion of your ocular. Because when you're in REM, your eyes are shooting around. And that's what they use to detect that. And an EKG as well is used to detect sleep-wake oftentimes. And so you're hooked up to this whole barrage and it's a little bit of a stretch, but I like to think about the psychology version of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle when it comes to this, which (laughs) is called the Hawthorne effect. And basically it's this idea that the act of measuring something can impact what you're measuring. And that's the problem with this, because you go to this sleep lab, it's a weird environment, you're primed not to sleep in that environment, and then they hook you up to all these uncomfortable equipments. And that's how they measure your sleep, but it's actually impacting the quality of your sleep just being in that environment in and of itself.
1: I have to chuckle because I've spoken about that specifically in talks and use the image of Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's right. In order to get increasingly accurate measurement, you're also disturbing sleep. And so, you have this paradox of getting closer to identifying some sort of pathognomonic characteristic of sleep that you could then say, ah, oh, this is REM sleep behavior disorder or restless mm. leg or whatever. But then, in doing so, you're definitely disrupting normal sleep by wearing 27 different leads coming out of your body in all <laughs> different ways. I actually have had a sleep study done. I don't know how anybody sleeps yeah. under a sleep study. Of course, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying that it's not ideal.
0: (laughs) That's part of the problem. And that's what a lot of people in the field are trying to solve for. It's such a clear problem. Yeah. One thing I will say in defense of the sleep labs like when you are asleep, you can detect these apneas. They pop out. And even if you're in a nasty environment, you will be able to see, at least for sleep apnea, there are really clear indicators when you're asleep, if you have it or not. And you don't necessarily even need to sleep well the whole night in order to evaluate that. Mm -hmm. And what they're also looking for is, there's two main types of apnea, actually. There's central apnea, there's actually more than that, but largely speaking, There's central apnea and there's obstructive. Almost everyone has obstructive sleep apnea if they have sleep apnea at all. That's actually a physical thing. And that's why if you have obstructive, weight loss is so important and all this stuff. But what they're looking at, central apnea is actually your brain producing some of these apneas. And a lot of times it goes hand in hand with obstructive and that's called complex. There's a whole rabbit hole. And this is why as a cognitive psychologist, I find this stuff so interesting. Sleep is the intersection of so many things.
1: Not only are there different categories of sleep disorders, but within a category, let's say insomnia, there are many different types. The ability to detect a signal accurately could lead to not only the broader classification of you have insomnia or sleep apnea, but possibly what type you have so you could get a better intervention
0: to get you to a better place. I love the train of thinking that you're on right now. And I riff on this with my professor oftentimes. I work with a professor at Penn State, Orfeo Buxton. And I think you might know him actually from I do, yeah. some of your, your past work. And we'll also often chat about maybe there's even more types of insomnia than are currently clinically known. Right now there's morning insomnia and evening insomnia. I think what we're going to find with a lot of chronic disease in the next 10 years, whether it's Alzheimer's, insomnia, apnea, is as humans, we like to have these broad categories for things because it sort of gives us a sense of control. But I think there might be 10 types of Alzheimer's disease. They're finding stuff like this. I think the same thing can be said for insomnia. Maybe there's actually 15 underlying pathologies and we come to call them all insomnia, but it's a combination of actually your sleep environment, first night effects, you know, sleeping in a new environment messes with you, temperature, sounds disrupting you, circadian rhythm issues. These are all underlying pathologies, and we call it insomnia, but maybe it's much more complicated than that. And what the wearables are going to enable us to do is for the first time in healthcare, it's not classifying you based on some population thing where we run a clinical trial and we show between group differences that this drug works. I want to give you the intervention that is best for your specific brand of insomnia. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm not doing this yet. This is a future goal, but that's a real inspiration for what we're doing.
1: That is an exciting future that's possible. That's a great primer on how sleep is generally measured, the different conditions that it detects and how. So even though you are disadvantaged in terms of the discomfort of the sleep measurement, it still is good at detecting characteristics that then let you know you have this condition. But because of the limitations and the disruption of the sleep monitoring and the limitations of only getting in one night versus 30 nights in a row, we are undoubtedly not assessing the variety of different types of sleep issues as accurately as we could. For that, you need a certain level of accuracy for some diagnostic ability. So since 2010, would you say that the accuracy of sleep monitoring devices across the big players in the wearable space, has that improved in the last 10 years?
0: That's what's exciting, is dramatically improved. And the main reason for that is, frankly, motion-based sensors to measure sleep have been around since the 70s. What's really interesting in 2014, when I reinvigorated my effort to improving people's sleep, is the heart rate monitors and the PPG. If you have an Apple Watch, you sometimes see that little green light coming out. I'm not an engineer necessarily, but... Basically, they shine the light and they can see the blood pulsing in and out and get your heart rate from that. Having that heart rate sensor changes the game in terms of sleep detection accuracy, especially for the sleep cycles, actually. The signal for sleep-wake is largely motion-based, but the heart rate sensor also helps with that. And then at the same time, it seems like a small thing, but technology-wise, it's a big deal. In the past with these devices, a scientist or a third-party app developer like myself couldn't get the data in real time. You'd only be able to see all the sleep data after the person wakes up. But now with the Apple Watch or with the Aura Ring or with the Fitbit, all of these devices, there's some differences. But just from what I've seen comparing it to truth data, which is polysomnography, you know, the electrodes, Mm -hmm. the sensors are pretty similar between all of these devices. I'm generalizing here, but sure. most of these, the sensors, most of them, they're made in China. They're, it's a very similar technology. The sensors are all almost on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. The form factors differ. A ring makes a difference compared to a wrist.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And also the battery life changes. But the biggest thing is the algorithms that sit on top of these sensor devices. And what we're trying to do is refine and improve those algorithms such that they'll work with all of the best devices and be validated scientifically for actually measuring your sleep.
1: Originally, we were talking about clinical sleep monitoring in a lab. They're looking at eye muscle movement to detect rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep. They're looking at how much blood oxygenated, EEG or electroencephalography, which is monitoring brain activity. You have to measure multiple different parameters to then triangulate that signal from that signal to assess what you're looking at. That only occurs through people getting together saying, These are our diagnostic criteria. This rules you in, this rules you out of this condition if you have these features on your overnight sleep study. In the consumable wearable space, started with movement detection. They've been adding additional parameters, heart rate and different signals that you can also triangulate or better signal detection. But what's been agreed upon as the best way to approach this, we're still in that time period where that's being sussed out. Is
0: that right? That's a very fair assessment. And just one thing I would also add that makes this all possible is the granular data. So like to do the accuracy for the machine learning stuff, you want as granular data as possible. And this gets a little nerdy. There's a lot of bang for the buck when you start getting multiple data streams. Like, for example, the Aura has some measures of internal body temperature too, Mm -hmm. which is something that we're interested in. When you have that big data approach and you start getting multiple data streams, the accuracy can dramatically improve. It's just going to get better and better in the next 10 years. Who knows when Apple finally put an EEG sensor in their earbuds or whatever. Right. There's a lot of exciting things pending in the future. So every time you add
1: some other relevant signal, you can leverage that signal to increase the reliability and the validity and accuracy of what you're measuring. So we're at a better place than we've ever been, but we still have to figure out the right algorithms that interpret all of this data and then say this is what's closest to what our current or
0: previous gold standard is and had been. That's exactly right. And so our approach is, I like to not have a horse in the race. I just want to use the best wearables and just build the algorithm on whatever wearable you might have at the time. So one algorithm that'll work on every single wearable out there that the scientific community can get behind, that's what I'm working on right now.
1: It's not that the signals that we've been detecting before from the clinic have been perfect. It's just that they've been worked with and
0: people know how to then work with them and know how reliable those signals are. That's the sad thing in science sometimes, as you've seen. You have some archaic device, and it's clinically validated because it has all this research behind it. The scientific and clinical community can't get beyond that sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Slow-moving ship at times. Yeah, And then you have consumers who have less pressure on somebody who is needing a certain degree of accuracy and acceptedness of a measure to then say, okay, well, I trust that the diagnosis that I'm getting from a device, which is sort of future thinking here, then that, that is true and real. But people who are buying these devices for the last 10 years and continue to do so now, they're not all necessarily trying to identify if they have a sleep issue.
0: Yeah, and so healthy sleep is a way that we like to think about this problem even more so than unhealthy sleep. And how do we actually make it healthier? Like I don't have any underlying pathology, for example, Mm -hmm. but I want to optimize myself as much as I can. I run a company, it's Pretty stressful. I know that I'm kind of a dick when I'm sleep deprived and I make poor decisions. So, how do I, just as a healthy person, evaluate the things that are negatively impacting me? And seeing that change in your sleep data after drinking alcohol is something that a lot of clients that I've spoken to have actually stopped drinking because they've seen that. So, one of the questions is, How do healthy people use these devices to improve themselves? And that's been a hot topic for debate in clinical environments as well. I just got back from a conference at the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine where there's a lot of concern amongst the clinicians that people are using this data and don't necessarily know how to interpret it Mm -hmm. and it can actually have negative unintended consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is something as technologists that I'm really thinking about and trying to be careful around. The New York Times also published an article a little while ago about this new concept orthosomnia, which is basically people who are really focusing on the metrics of some of these devices to an unhealthy degree. And it's producing anxiety and actually making their sleep worse. So that's something to think about. But I think there is a way to design a system that gives people this data in a way that is fair and accurate and doesn't produce anxiety for people. And a lot of this comes down to the interpretation. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I'm a humanist. I was like an English major and a psych major in undergrad. I don't think that some AI is just going to replace the human. I see these devices as facilitating humans, helping other humans with informed metrics of what's actually going on with that individual. And I think when the technology is used in that way, in more of a coaching, more of a facilitator model, that's when we can actually start seeing some positive health outcomes
1: some of the sensationalism of the idea that sleep trackers ruin your sleep. It is possible for some. I don't think it's representative for all. Anybody can take any piece of health equipment and misuse it in a way where it doesn't become healthy. And that might sometimes be from an underlying psychiatric issue of anxiety. And so they develop anxiety around whatever they're interacting with. The real interesting question for me is, can this take somebody who doesn't have existing anxiety or a history of that and create that issue commonly. Generally, the mission of getting objective feedback on yourself, understanding factors that might influence sleep satisfaction, helping you wake up and feel better, and then serving as an engagement tool to stay true to your ideals about what you think gets you good sleep and learning over time. I mean, hey, we know that drinking caffeine and alcohol before bed is going to disrupt your sleep. We can tell you that, but if you have the personalized experience where you see the data, it might resonate in a totally different
0: way. Exactly.
1: What do you think is the future of the next stage? You mentioned some things earlier. like We start with tracking, but we might be now intervening during sleep to enhance things. What does that look like in today's world, and what will it look like five or ten years from now?
0: I've made some weird patents and inventions around a speaker in the mounted in your bed. And we've really focused on sound in our research. So the professor I work with was one of the first people to observe how sounds in a hospital environment negatively impact your sleep quality. So it's kind of ridiculous that you go to a hospital, you're expected to recover in this noisy environment. And sleep is one of those things that helps your immune system and helps your body recover yet we present people with this disruptive sleep environment when we're trying to help them get better. In our lab, we have systematically delivered sounds to people and we've done this for a few different reasons. One is to understand how sounds disrupt sleep and another is to understand how to mask those sounds with something we call pink noise. Just a snoring bedtime partner will negatively impact your sleep because the abruptness of the sound is really what's disruptive. Mm-hmm. And then the cool part of that is when you start getting into how can we deliver sounds such that the brain can process it, but it doesn't wake you up. Mm -hmm. And that's the core technology that we have gotten some expertise in. And so we'll deliver hundreds of sounds to people throughout the night in a sleep lab using EEG while they're connected to all the best wearables, and from this, we're able to understand how to play a sound so that your brain processes it, but it doesn't wake you up. Mm, yeah. And it's sort of like a tightrope walk, if you push too hard, you'll awaken the person, you know, that's not good. We'll deliver this hundreds throughout the night. They'll have no conscious awareness that we're playing these sounds to them. And what we're trying to do, there's a couple things. First in 2013, I submitted a patent using sounds to query your sleep stage. And it actually finally almost seems like it's gonna get accepted. It takes a long time. Hmm. And so basically the idea is you play a sound and that since people have different heart rate responses to the sound based on their sleep stage, you actually use it to figure out what stage sleep they're in. Once we know which stage sleep they're in with a higher degree of certainty, Then we try to prime their brain into different stages of sleep. And basically what we're doing here is we're playing a delta wave, which is the same frequency as your brain waves when they're in the deep state of sleep. And we've shown that we could improve your sleep architecture by playing these sounds basically throughout the night. Other things we're exploring is manipulating dreams. Let me ask something about that.
1: There's been research playing pink noise while somebody sleeps for the whole night. And in both young and olds, it showed to augment memory. Pretty cool. But sleep, one of the challenging parts about it and manipulating it is that it's defined by such distinct neurophysiological signatures across the night and even behavioral patterns that the body is clearly in different states as it's in different sleep stages across the night. So for drugs, if you're optimizing for one sleep stage, you're automatically probably sacrificing another if that can't be targeted to a very specific moment in time. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what you're doing, you're looking to evaluate what sounds work best at different times.
0: We're trying to figure out how to play a sound at the right volume to get your brain to produce more delta waves.
1: And testing different sounds in that moment.
0: We've systematically varied the quality of the sounds, and we have a good understanding of which sound is good in that moment. Okay. And, and that sound is kind of universal across people. If
1: I happen to be in deep sleep and my brain is manifesting these very slow, high amplitude rhythmic waves, your system will start to play those sounds in that stage. Will the brain entrain itself so that it gets synced up with the sounds that are being played? even if they occur slightly askew or they have to be perfectly in sync in order for it to have an augmenting
0: benefit to the sleeper. So this gets really sciency and I love going down this pathway with you. I hope your viewers (laughs) appreciate it, but this is a big discussion in the literature right now. What invigorated me to return to this subject was some findings related to this delta frequency where some researchers out of Germany showed the author's NGO is the name. But what they did is they phase locked the sound, meaning they had an EEG. They could measure the up and down oscillations when you're in deep sleep. Mm -hmm. And they played the sounds at the up oscillations in order to prime the brain state. What if we can do this without an EEG? So that's what the basis of our grants work. And we got some grants with the National Institute of Aging actually, because as you get older, your deep sleep decreases. And it's thought to be associated with cognitive decline. We're looking at conversion of mild cognitive impairment right now as an area. It's also related to human growth hormone, cell recovery, all these good things. You want more deep sleep. You want more rap, basically. Those are the two things you want at the expense of light sleep is how I usually think about it. Mm -hmm. What we tried to show is that we could produce this Delta response with the sounds without phase locking, just by playing it at the right volume level, at the right timing of your sleep. And we'll actually play it in both light sleep and deep sleep and play different volumes during those. And we were able to show that we could induce these Delta waves, and we're publishing a paper on this right now, in a non-phase locked manner. I don't doubt that that's possible. And I like
1: that approach. It's perhaps a little bit less sophisticated, but might be infinitely more implementable. Exactly. What is the potential capacity to augment slow-wave sleep? It sounds like you're looking to augment REM sleep too?
0: Yes. That's like a nerdy finding that we've focused on. But just broadly speaking, and you've talked about this in your human OS content, there's a lot of ways to improve people's deep sleep. And if I'm talking to someone, I'm trying to help them, I'm not just thinking about this one aspect of technology for doing it, whether it's in training your circadian rhythm, making sure the person's getting more sunlight during the day. You've posted and Matthew Walker has posted some stuff around raising your body temperature throughout the day can result in more deep sleep. I'm actually curious your insights in some of these other things.
1: Rocking, physical activity, light, possibly activation of brown fat from cold, There's potentially a lot of things that are secondary measures feeding into the homeostat or the collector of signal that builds up pressure over the day that then would deepen your sleep at night. If you look at hunter-gatherers, they don't necessarily get more sleep than modern sleeping humans, but they have very robust circadian amplitude, probably largely driven by just getting natural light exposure across the day. I'm always one for optimizing lifestyle parameters before looking to intervene in a more technological way but can you do everything right and still augment it with technology? Obviously, it's great to see that there is an impact that's statistically significant in terms of deepening slow wave sleep here and there, but does that also lead to outcomes that are desirable? Improvements in memory, improvements of vigilance without any untoward side effects that are detectable. That is the potential, and it's exciting, and I think we need it because we're not living outside all day long. Can you prevent mild cognitive impairment and delay it for 15 years or longer or prevent it altogether by having some really sophisticated technologies that's easy to implement for many people. I love that pursuit.
0: Exactly. And so when we think about this also, we're thinking about lights and you have tapped on that too. With these new wearable devices, you hook up your Philips Hue to the sleep detection system or your LifeX bulbs, and then all of a sudden you're entrenching your circadian rhythm. So while even that we're inside all day, with the technology, you can sort of non-invasively optimize people's sleep in, in various ways. And the behavior change stuff can be basically augmented with some of these cues from your environment. And that's what we're trying to do with this next phase of funding. There's a lot of money in the federal government for solving Alzheimer's right now Mm -hmm. because they've tried a lot of drugs. It's hard to get past the brain-blood barrier. A lot of them haven't worked. Recent evidence has shown that deep sleep in particular cleans out your beta amyloid plaques, which is thought to be associated with developing Alzheimer's disease. That's one of our primary focuses right now.
1: That's great. Yeah, I interviewed Bryce Mander previously on the podcast. who works in the Matt Walker lab at Berkeley. We focused in on the aging brain and his recent publications in that field specifically. We used to think that sleep was just a very common symptom to all people that are experiencing mild cognitive impairment, particularly all forms of dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. We now think it's actually causative. So it's not just a symptom symptom that tracks with the development of dementias, but it's actually something that is probably driving the process. It makes sense that these certain pathologies might build up, interfere with the generation of slow-wave sleep, and then the lack of slow-wave sleep accelerates the pathogenesis.
0: Exactly. Yeah, they've done some really captivating scientific work with fMRI and doing sleep deprivation for people and actually showing some of the biomarkers for Alzheimer's increasing. They've also started out with the mouse and done some really interesting neuroscience studies showing the role of slow wave sleep and cleaning out these maladaptive plaques that form. The
1: technology doesn't need to do all of the work. It can do some of the work, but those who are wearing it, it can serve again as that behavioral lever to then go do other things. It can serve as a catalyst to then go do other things that you can do simply from a behavioral perspective. That potential of some additional augmentation and the augmentation of the right behavioral set that puts you in a far better place than you would have been before and without it. I'm all about how do we maximally leverage the existing technology and then build on that as new signals come on board, more accuracy comes on board, and we can have more intervention in the middle of the night that potentially could make the whole process even better than it was previously. Now, where are you currently? Do you have any apps in the store that people can go try and use? What sort of tech have you built so far that's available to consumers?
0: We've made the Sonic Sleep Coach That's an app on the App Store that also connects with the Apple Watch. And so we have this algorithm that we think is one of the most accurate for measuring sleep. And if you have an Apple Watch, it'll work. Also, if you don't have an Apple Watch, we measure the sound in the room to figure out things like snoring. And we have a sleep diary and the smart alarm clock that wakes you up gradually, which I firmly believe is the right way to wake up. If you have the Apple Watch, it will deliver the deep sleep stimulation sounds. And also, I've been doing this thing recently that I'm kind of doing a mad scientist thing on myself. And this is very quantified self-esque. And for the biohackers listening, you might be interested. I've been meditating on my 10-year vision for myself Mm. while I'm playing a specific audio track. In my case, it's 528 hertz which is in our software as well. And we have a few wind downs. The clinical community loves progressive muscle relaxation. Mm -hmm. So we have that in there as a way to relax your mind as well. And so I'll meditate on my 10-year vision while listening to the sound. And then our system, since we know how to play sounds so that it doesn't wake you up, will actually replay the sound when you're in a REM state. And what I'm trying to see is if I can entrain this way of thinking about my 10-year vision into my subconscious mind, That's almost right. as a way of inceptioning myself. It's very Joe dispenza You create your reality and riffing off of the placebo effect. So that's kind of another train of thinking that I'm on right now.
1: There's a lot of potential to ingrain some sort of behavioral practice around the last hour of time awake before you go to bed, thinking perhaps on some challenges that you're trying to solve, putting that into your mind right before bed. So instead of- necessarily watching some entertainment that allows you to relax which can be good too and is what most people do you actually think really clearly on some challenge and then that is populating your mind as you go to sleep which might actually lead to developing creative ideas faster on that subject
0: totally there's a lot of really captivating research on just the act of imagining playing basketball yeah helps you perform better at playing basketball One of the other things I've been doing is just in the same vein of what you were just mentioning is doing a little gratitude meditation before bed. Mm -hmm. I find that I'm kind of nicer to people the next day. Mm, So that's another one.
1: I love it. So if you have an Apple watch, you can download the app. And is this on iOS and Android? It is iOS and Android. Yep. Okay. So you download it. It's both on your phone and it then goes onto the watch. Right now, Apple Watch has got 18-hour battery life, so it's not a full day. What do you recommend people do if they've worn it from the morning when they wake up? What's your best practice process for charging it before you go to bed?
0: This is a little bit of a struggle, and I can get into the nuances of this, but Apple Watch 4, we can mm-hmm. get it up to 24 hours with some tweaking. Okay, And so usually what I'll do is... Well, honestly, for me, I don't really use the watch that much in the day and I just use it at night because mm. I'm very interested in my sleep. And, but what you can also do is just charge in the morning when you wake up or throughout the day. Do you
1: recommend setting an alarm to, say, charge your watch, let's say, at 8 or between that last hour when
0: you're in bed meditating and then you'll have a full battery before you go to bed? That's a good idea, Dan. I should <laughs> Thanks for bringing. I should suggest that while they're doing the wind down it's a perfect time to charge. It only takes a half an hour to charge the new devices, so it's not that bad.
1: It's frustrating. It's another barrier, but those who are engaged could probably do it. It's just a small curve to step over.
0: But that's why I love Aura. And so we're trying to collaborate with them and work with their device soon too.
1: I'm very impressed with the frictionlessness of the form factor of Aura. I didn't know if I was going to
0: enjoy wearing
1: it because I've never worn rings, but I've replaced my wedding ring with Waiwara, So it's my wedding ring
0: now. It actually is a nice like it can function yeah. as a wedding. I'm wearing one right now and it yeah, kind of looks like a wedding ring. I like aesthetically appreciate how it looks. Oh for sure.
1: I appreciate that about my Fitbit too. So I'm always testing various devices because I'd like to have personal experience with them. My Fitbit lasts about seven days as well. I was doing something similar to what you were doing. I'd wear my Apple Watch during the day because I was doing some testing around that. And then when I put it on the charger, I put my Fitbit on at night. Hmm. And then in the morning, I would just switch them. It would take maybe a grand total of 20 seconds over the 24-hour period to do that. It's quite easy. I know other people that do that too. So I could measure my sleep and then I'd have my Apple Watch during the day. But what I found is that it was easier to then keep sticking with my Fitbit because it's Mm seven-day battery life. So it's similar to the Oura Ring. I think when you have at least multiple days, hopefully a week, it's going to be more convenient for you to then do the charging. That's an advantage that Fitbit or a Garmin have over Apple Watch at the moment. And I have less experience with Samsung, but I think they have longer battery life as well. The Garmins are really impressive. Some of them have three-week battery lives, which is crazy. I mean, you
0: get a lot of bang for the buck if you don't have like a fancy interface on top of the app. I think Apple Watch will just keep getting better. And that's the hope in terms of the battery. And in the meantime, another solution is just to be a nerd like you and have eight devices that you just swap in and out. And I'm actually wearing two Apple Watches right now, but I'm not a normal person.
1: There are people out there that are going to on their own where a lot of different devices are looking to get a lot of different information and work with it. And I totally respect that. I'm mostly testing these devices for what I would consider our average user. So, not necessarily a wonk or somebody that has extra special interest in what we do. But does this provide a nice experience for those who are trying to do their job really well and care about self-care and their own health and are looking to leverage some of these technologies to do a little bit better? Each one of these devices has their strengths. Each one of them has their weaknesses. Each form factor has its strengths and its weaknesses. And what I typically tell people is that unless there is some clear advantage for something specific that you would like to do, and sometimes, yes, one of the different technologies will do something better, then find the one that you're most motivated to use. Mm. You are the willful participant in making it actually beneficial to you. Does it change your behavior versus it acting upon you? And,
0: And I've seen plenty of that
1: you know, I wore it. It didn't do anything for me. What did you do with it?
0: I like that perspective. It makes a lot of sense. And compliance when it comes to some of these things is one of the biggest predictors if it's actually going to help you or not. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, so if you have an uh, Android wearable or you have an Apple Watch, you can go to the store right now, download the app, try it for a night, see what kind of feedback you get. What do you think is a reasonable trial period to get a sense of how the app works and how you can work with the app?
0: I always like to not make money unless it's actually helping people right so on. we actually just offer it for free for a seven day period It's great, uh, and see if it's working for you after that if it's working then it's uh, nine ninety nine a month or uh, thirty nine ninety nine a year with that you get a lot of the stuff that we've mentioned but it also looks like you've
1: got email coaching and You can add, in addition to that baseline price, augmented services.
0: Exactly. So one of the things that I really believe in, and and this is also relevant for any biohackers listening, is you own your own data. So we're collecting very granular heart rate, motion, and sound data from the room, and you're able to actually export all of that information. Oh, that's cool. Um, From our web portal. Actually, researchers could be interested in this as well. Mm -hmm. And since we have that on our web portal, I've been training pre-med students on how to actually give people relevant feedback on the data that is being collected. Some of the phone calls, I'll be on the call. I'm walking you through the data and trying to give you actionable solutions to improve your sleep health. You can basically email exchange with us. After you collect seven days of data, that's enough to really get a sense of what's going on with you. And we try to deliver this personalized feedback, whether it's get sunlight exposure at this time, shift your bedtime back two hours. A lot of these solutions are very individual. So we try to make sure that you have the opportunity to say what's going on in an email or over the phone. And then we look at the data and try to give customized feedback that's most relevant to the person.
1: I love it, right? Because science could say, go to bed two hours earlier. And the mom could say, well, my son gets home late every night from work. I can't sleep until he's home. So it's- exactly You have to work with that and say, okay, how can we do better than given the constraints of your real
0: life? Exactly. And something that I really appreciate, and just from talking to so many people about their sleep problems, you pick up on these little things on what the person is willing to do or not willing to do that are really important for actually giving someone a recommendation. Yeah. Just like the subtleties of human communication.
1: It would be very hard to have an algorithm that picked up on all of those potential nuances of a person's real life and work that into the system. A coach could figure
0: that out within a week. And at the end of the day, just to add, Dan, part of the effect is me having empathy for your situation and selling a solution in a very human way where you have trust for what I'm saying and having that trust with the human. And I studied this in grad school a little bit in human computer interaction. Trying to build that trust with an AI is not easy. Yeah. No one's done it really yet. The uncanny valley, as they say, which exactly. is the that distance between
1: some digital representation of humanness and real humanness. It might be a gap that seems across the river, but is exceedingly difficult to cross.
0: <laughs> yes. I would say right now it seems insurmountable, but we'll see what happens in the future.
1: Well, Daniel, thank you for your time. One thing I haven't mentioned so far is that you have a tremendous TED Talk. What is it, five minutes? Yeah. It's short. It does a really nice explanation of a lot of what we've talked about, but I'm going to put it into our blog that accompanies this podcast so people can go and watch it. You did a great job for sure. And how many views has it gotten now? Three and a half million.
0: That's great.
1: That's fantastic. That says a lot too. It's been liked and shared by many people and it clearly articulates this aspiration of sleep's a problem. How do we do better? Thank you for all your work in this area. It's always a pleasure to connect with you and hear what you're up to and see how you are advancing things. And it's going to be fun to stay in touch and monitor and benefit from all of the contributions you make over uh, your career.
0: Awesome, Dan. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. And come visit us soon at humanos.me.